Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is the Rev, Taylor Schwink. I'm Buster only working from my home studio in uh, New York. Now, just before the show yesterday, there was breaking news. The Yankees agreed to a new three-year deal with Aaron Boone. Aaron Boone held a Zoom call later in the day talking about returning to the Yankees. I mean, I think I've had some conversations along the way with Cash, and and certainly at the end of the year, you know, uh, we spoke a little bit, and and he, he, you know, definitely voiced his support and desire to have me back and um, made me feel like that was the case. Um, I had a good conversation with with Hal um, beginning of last week, um, just about stuff and and certainly from my end was was satisfied and heard what I felt like I wanted to hear and certainly understand the the challenges and the tasks moving forward but um yeah I think conversations with them put me in a space that if everything lined up you know otherwise I felt like this was where I wanted to be Yankees general manager Brian Cashman spoke with reporters and acknowledged they need to find a shortstop. We're going to have more on that later in the podcast after I pulled uh, 11 evaluators ranking the elite class of free agent shortstops. First game played yesterday, Dodgers and Braves. There was a missed call in this game on a ball strike choice. Walker Bueller had a 2-0 lead, two strikes on Jack Peterson through an 0-2 pitch that appeared to be a strike clearly. Jerry Meals called it a ball, and then this happened. Kicks, fired. Swing and a line drive. Base hit in a right field. In to score is Freddie Freeman. Riley will stop at third. RBI single, Jock Peterson. And it's a 2-1 game. That was Boog Shabby on ESPN Radio. The rally for the Braves continued. And the pitch. Outside ball four. He walked in a run. And Walker Bueller, I think frustrated, certainly frustrated with the strike zone. And Dave out of the dugout. Dave Roberts points to the pen, and he's going to get the lefty. The Braves have knocked Walker Bueller out of the game. The Braves would hold a 5-2 lead in this game, and they turned to their best relievers. In the eighth inning, that would be Luke Jackson. Coming on, he faced Cody Bellinger. 1-2, Jackson at the belt. Check Smith at second. The pitch. Swing and a drive. Deep right field. That one back, and we tied Cody Bellinger dancing around the bases and this place is going crazy he got to an impossibly high fastball and he ties the game the inning would continue Chavez fires swing and a line drive out towards right center and it's going to touch down for a hit in the score is Taylor Betts to second, he slides in, and it's an RBI double for Mookie Betts. The Dodgers lead it 6-5. And Kenley Jansen came on to throw the ninth inning. Two balls, two strikes, two outs. Jansen fires. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. Jansen strikes out the side, and the Dodgers take game three. 6-5 the final. That's right. The Dodgers could have been down 3-0, but instead it's now 2-1 in the National League Championship Series with the Braves ahead. Right after the game, Cody Bellinger spoke with our Alden Gonzalez. 
Let's go downstairs, Alden Gonzalez with Cody Bellinger. Celebration from you. What's going through your mind as you see that ball clear the fence? Uh, I knew I hit it well, um, but it, it, it was high, so I didn't I didn't know, you know, for sure. Uh, I saw a jog, you know, running out of room there, and it was just, you know, pure celebration, and just glad I could, you know, tie the game, and, um, you know, was, uh, get some energy going. Cody, ever since the postseason began, we've seen the old Cody Bellinger again. What has led to that? Uh, you know, it's kind of a fresh start. Um, you know, I had a tough season, and uh, but I felt really good towards the end of that season. And, um, you know, I try to continue that uh, into the postseason. And, you know, I'm just playing the game of baseball and helping the team win any way I can and having fun with it. And just what is it about this team that every time it's backs is against the wall, you guys seem to respond and, and answer? What is it about you guys? We were a good team, and uh, we've been in this situation many times before. And, um, you know, we're lucky and blessed to have had so many opportunities to be in that situation in the postseason. So, um, you know, like I said, we've been in this situation before. And, um, you know, it's not – don't want your backs against the wall. Um, but, you know, when it is, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a good job of uh, grinding and fighting and continue to go. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts talked about Bellinger's homer. Pure elation, joy. It's just hard to imagine a bigger hit that I can remember, really. Um, just kind of what was at stake and couldn't be happier for him. What a win. I'm just kind of exhausted right now, but um, very happy for Cody. Mookie Betts was asked about how aware he was in the eighth inning about the Dodgers possibly being down 3-0 in this series. Uh, I think everybody's super aware of it. You know, it's impossible not to be aware of it. Um, but I think that's a, a weak way to, to think of things. I think uh, our mindset has been, why are we going to focus on that? When we're here now, we can win the game now. All it takes is a hit or two, and then you get some energy, and then you forget about that you're down 0-2 and, 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 and whatnot. And so uh, I think uh, that's one of our strong suits is not worrying about what happened yesterday, you know, focusing on, on right now. Braves manager Brian Snitker talked about how his team will respond in game four. Oh, yeah. No, they'll be fine. I mean, they'll come out and they'll be ready to play. They're going to prepare as always. And, and um, you know, we, we've lost tough games before and bounced back and done really good things. So this is just, you know, it's just one of them games. Luke Jackson, who gave up that home run, was asked about what he would have done differently on that pitch. Luke, you look at that pitch, it's a couple inches above the zone. What would you like to have done different with that pitch? The sad part is I'd do the same thing again. He's exactly right. It was an excellent pitch. Cody Bellinger just beat him. Okay, at Fenway Park last night, the Astros and the Red Sox, Boston with a two-game-to-one lead. The Houston rotation absolutely crumbling early in this series. Alex Bregman, though, gave the Astros a lead. The 2-0, and here's a swing and a high fly ball to left field, and Bregman's going to turn those numbers around a little bit. Up into the monster seats, a home run for Alex Bregman, and the Astros have a one to nothing lead. Dan Showman on ESPN Radio. In the bottom of the first, however, Zach Granke hung a breaking ball. And the 1-0 to Bogarts hit high and deep to left field. And it is going to disappear into the Boston night. Out onto Lansdowne Street, and the Red Sox lead 2-1. to one. And the Red Sox would have chances to extend their lead, but they weren't able to take advantage of those. In the top of the eighth inning, Boston still had a 2-1 to one lead. Jose Altuve at the plate for Houston. And the first pitch to Altuve is a fly ball to left field, and it's gone. And how about that? On the first pitch of the eighth inning, Altuve lines a home run up over the monster, and the Astros have tied it. In the ninth inning, 
It was still two all. There were two strikes on Jason Castro, Nathan Avaldi on the mound for the Red Sox. There were two outs, and this is what happened. The breaking ball just missed, tried to backdoor the breaking ball. We talked about it earlier in the series. Navaldi throws five pitches, at least 10% or more, and he throws all of them for strikes. Well, that, that got that got both the catcher and the hitter in opposite ways. <laughs> I think the reason he didn't throw down is he thought it was a ball and then heard the strike three a little too late. Because he knows that's a ball maybe when he gets ready. And all he has to do is make this throw now. And I think he could have an argument for interference. And it looked like that was a strike. That was Fox, uh, John Smoltz, doing the analysis there. Uh, It was a backdoor breaking ball. According to the pitch track uh, data, it was a strike. But Nathan Valdi returned to the mound, and this is what happened. 2-2 again, and a swing and a liner into center, a base hit. Correa around third on his way home. He will score. Around a third on the play is Goriel. Jason Castro with an RBI single. And the Astros have taken the lead here in the top of the ninth. And then the Red Sox completely melted down. And the first pitch to Brantley. A swing and there's a ball lined up the alley in right center field. It's going to the fence. Goriel will score. Castro will score. Altuve will score. It's a bases-clearing double for Michael Brantley, and it is 6-2 Houston. And after Houston's 9-2 victory, Alex Cora was asked about bringing Evaldi into the game. He, of course, is lined up uh, to start Game 6 in this series. This was a bullpen day for him. Here's Alex. He was going to give us one inning, and we fell right there in that pocket. It was good for him. I wasn't going to use him in extra innings because then I get tempted to use him for six. So uh, I decided to use him in the ninth. There was a lot of conversation after the game about Laz Diaz's strike zone and that no strike call in the ninth inning. Here's Alex Cora. I got to take a look. I mean, a lot of people thought it was a strike. Here's Nathan Avaldi. I thought it was a strike, um, you know, but again, I'm in the moment. I'm trying to make my pitches. I'm attacking the zone. Uh, and came in the ninth inning. I gave up a double to Correa. I tried to go to work there and try to get some outs and, you know, prevent him from scoring. I had two strikeouts and then facing Castro, I felt like I was in, in control of the at-bat. felt like I made a good pitch on the outside corner and, you know, it didn't go my way, but I got to come back and, you know, I got to answer back and make another good pitch. Here's Marley Rivera speaking with Carlos Correa right after the game. We got to stay relentless out there. We can't give up. Okay. Um, they knew the series was not going to be easy. We knew the series was not going to be easy. So we got to battle all the way until 27 hours are recorded. And that's the mentality in that clubhouse. Altuve started us off with that big homer. And then in the ninth inning, everybody came along, putting great at-bats together, and we were able to score, score those runs. You talked about Jose Altuve. You and Altuve continue to really show up in the postseason. But today, Jason Castro was actually the hero. What do you have to say about what Jason did today? I mean, coming up the bench and facing the, the, the bullpen guys, and high leverage situations is never easy. And the Abbas he took today were outstanding. I mean, he's he's one of the best hitters in the, in the crunch time. He's been all year long for us, uh, coming to pinch hit and delivering big hits. So today was no surprise. He's calm, cool, collected, and he delivered for us. Carlos, what does it mean to actually like have home field advantage back and send this series back to Houston? Well, I'm not thinking about that yet. I'm thinking about tomorrow. We gotta, we gotta try to win that game tomorrow. Um, they got a great pitcher. I guess Sale is gonna pitch tomorrow for them. So we gotta lock in, put great at bats together once again, and carry on what happened in the ninth inning to tomorrow. Taylor, what do you got? 
Buster, it is just the best sports time of the year because tonight on ESPN Radio, you can listen to Game 5 of Braves at Dodgers on ESPN Radio. Tune in 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Also on ESPN tonight, Knicks Celtics for NBA ESPN's NBA opening night, followed by Nuggets Suns. Two great matchups to tip off the NBA season on ESPN and the ESPN app. One app, one tap. And finally, listen to Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and watch them on ESPN News Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern time or you can listen to kjm wherever you listen to podcasts we're driven by the search for better when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Buster. Just go to Indeed.com Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Welcome to the show! Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, mate. Welcome to the show. Whoa! Welcome to the show, baby. You're in the show with David Schoenfield. David Schoenfield covers baseball for ESPN. And Dave, today you and I are going to talk about the engines of change. And if we have some time at the back end, I want to talk about a piece that I did on the elite class of free agent shortstops. I got 11 evaluators to rank them one through five. And some of the stuff that I heard was pretty fascinating. What do you think? That sounds fun. Much more fun than uh, me blowing all the pine needles off my driveway this afternoon. Oh, I, well, I thought you were going to talk about predictions because <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll make some predictions. That's easy enough to do. Oh, my goodness. I hate predictions at this point because all of them have been so wrong. All right. Let's talk about the Dodgers and the Braves yesterday. One of the things that I love about baseball is that players change, players evolve, you know, in this era in which, uh, you know, analytics are, are, are used to define players, players will still surprise you. Cody Bellinger had one of the worst seasons any offensive players had in the last 10, uh, 10 years. And last week against the Giants in game five, this is what he did. The one, two, swing and a line drive. That's a base hit, right center field. 
Turner around third. Turner on his way to the plate. He's in to score. Bellinger an RBI single here in the ninth. And the Dodgers have taken a 2-1 lead in game five. Yep. And so that enabled the Dodgers to advance uh, you know, beyond the Giants in, in the division series and get to the National League Championship Series. And yesterday, they're down two to none. Uh, they're down three runs. And in the eighth inning, and then Bellinger gets to a high fastball, which is a pitch that has completely confounded this year. Uh, and he hits a three-run homer. And what a great moment. Completely unexpected if you've been watching him hit all year. It's really cool. What do you think? Yeah, look, it's the most well-known pitching approach in baseball this season. Cody Bellinger can't hit velocity, especially can't hit high velocity. He hit 119 against fastballs in the upper third of the strike zone. And that pitch wasn't even in the strike zone. It was above the strike zone. I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, but according to our ESPN stats crew, that pitch was 4.12 feet off the ground. We have data in the postseason going back to 2008. That was the highest pitch at 95-plus hit for a home run in the postseason since 2008. Unhittable pitch, and he hit it out. And it was a reminder because it wasn't like, you know, he was like reaching up or it seemed unusual. He's just such a phenomenal athlete, and that's what Dodgers people have reminded me of time and time and time again when they talked about his struggles and, you know, where it would at some point he sit him down at some point he drop in the lineup, you know, questions about what he's going to be going forward. They always come back to that. The amazing athlete that he is. Yeah, no doubt. It, it, it makes you wonder if Max Muncy hadn't been hurt in that final day of the regular season is Cody Bellinger in the lineup. I guess he could have been playing center field. Maybe that's Chris Taylor. I don't know. But with Muncie out, they had no choice but to play Bellinger as bad as he was during the season. And who knows, that hit yesterday may have saved their season. Yeah, uh, there's no question about it. They're alive. They would have been down 3-0. He gets the big home run. They go on and win. And after the game, when Luke Jackson was asked about that pitch, I loved his response, Dave. They were basically like, I, I don't second guess myself on that pitch. Yeah, no, it was the right pitch. I mean, I know I looked at the numbers. Yeah, with two strikes, Jackson, he's a fastball slider guy. He does usually throw a slider about two-thirds of the time. But, again, with Bellinger's hole on those high fastballs, I think it was the right pitch. It was almost a waste pitch. I think it was a one-two count. You know, you throw that pitch 100 times, I don't know if Bellinger hits it, you know, 99 other times. But he hit it the one time, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Now the Braves have recent history of blowing a lead against the Dodgers. They were at three to one in the NLCS last year. Of course, I just don't feel like there's necessarily carryover from this win. In other words, the Dodgers could win today and they could go on and win the world series, go on and win the series. And it wouldn't be a shocker, but I don't see this Braves team kind of folding up. What about you? No, I don't think so. I mentioned this Remember last year. Yeah. They had a two Oh lead and then a three, three, one series lead, but their rotation was a mess. You know, last year they had to start Kyle Wright in game three, and then it was Bryce Wilson in game four. You know, they didn't have Charlie Morton on the team. Um, so, yeah, they have a bullpen game today. That's certainly a question mark. But then he come back with Max Fried in game five. He's been absolutely dominant really the last three-plus months. You know, and if you get back to a game seven, you know, you got Charlie Morton again. So, 
they're still in much, much better shape than they were a year ago. Yeah. Max Fried is going to be pitching on full rest in game five. And then, you know, if there's a game six or there will be at least a game six. Uh, no, we don't know that for sure. If there is a game six, Ian Anderson would be yep. pitching at home. And then if there's a game seven, you get Charlie Morton pitching yeah. at home. So if you like the the Braves, you like the fact that uh, if the Dodgers are going to beat you, they're going to have to do it in Atlanta. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, just despite the win, the Dodger offense, you know, clearly not clicking. You know, obviously they miss Max Muncy. Uh, the Turners really have to come up and do something. You know, I don't know if Cody Bellinger is going to keep hitting three-run homers for you. So Justin Turner, Trey Turner, they got to start hitting. That, to me, is the key for the Dodgers rest of the series. The Astros and the Red Sox now tied at two all after that game last night. And I think we should start with this. Uh, about what happened in that game. What an incredible job by the Houston bullpen. I, Dave, I thought when Zach Ranke's walking off the mound in the second inning, I'm like, they're done. There's no way they can again survive a start from a guy uh, you know, who uh, opens the game for them. They've In four games, they've gotten six and two-thirds innings from their starting pitchers. It's crazy. Yeah, how is this series tied, right? Just If you were just given that number – how many innings Houston starters have gone? You're like, oh, it's a sweep. This series is over. You know, and it's funny. I got an email from a friend of mine who's a diehard Red Sox fan before the game, and he said, Red Sox fans are way too happy right now. It's only two to one. This series is not over. And as we saw in baseball, anything can happen. You know, Christian Javier was the real key coming in yep. in long relief. Uh, Kendall Graveman through two innings, you know, and get, give some props here to obviously the players first and foremost, but Dusty Baker, you know, kind of for a 72 year old old school manager adjusting to the modern way of managing a playoff game. He got Granky out of there as quick as he could. And he ran through his relievers and they did a great job. Yeah, Christian Javier in the postseason so far, seven and two thirds innings, three hits allowed, no runs. 13 strikeouts. He was phenomenal. And on the flip side, if you're the Red Sox, it felt like one of those, you know, boxing matches where, uh, you know, someone has an opponent on the ropes, like just a one big swing. And you know what? It could be over. And the Red Sox had runners on base and they couldn't get it done. Yeah, no. And you're leading two one in the eighth and Garrett Whitlock's on the hill. He's been, you know, great all season, great all postseason. And one mistake. Jose Altuve hits it over the monster tie game. And then we all saw what happened in the ninth inning. Well, and I think what happened with Altuve last night was an example of the toughness of these players, uh, the Astros players, uh, you know, and then we're going to talk a little bit at the back end about my ranking of free agent shortstops. One of the observations that I got in talking with evaluators is, is that the uh, players handling of the scrutiny in the aftermath of the science ceiling scandal has gone from being a potential negative to now a positive in how they're viewed. Like Carlos Correa has checked the toughness box <laughs> <laughs> for all of these teams that might be looking at him as a free agent shortstop. They're like, you know what? This guy has played through a lot of that. And Jose Altuve, I think we could say that about as well. Yeah. look, we've, I know we've talked about this a lot, you know, last year during the regular season this year, how Altuve really was affected last year, had, you know, yep. by far the worst year of his career, bounced back this year. And man, does this guy love October or what? 21 career playoff home runs now. That's third all time. But here's what's amazing, Buster. 
Manny Ramirez had 29 in 111 games. Bernie Williams, 22 in 121 games. Altuve has 21 playoff home runs in 71 games. I mean, that's like a 47 home run pace over a full season. This guy, he's like Babe Ruth suddenly in the postseason, (laughs) and he's done it his whole career. Man, what a player. Yep. Jason Castro coming through, Michael Brantley coming through for the the Astros as well. So we start with that. Uh, But then we're going to go to the flip side of the conversation about last night's game, which was about Laz Diaz and the would-be strike call to end the top of the ninth inning last night. And we're essentially going to go from looking at this game from ground level to 30,000 feet. Uh, It's evident that isolated moments can be the engine of change in baseball. In 2008, for example, you remember on Sunday Night Baseball, a home run by Carlos Delgado against the Yankees came up and you know, this wound up leading to replays on home runs. Uh, you remember what happened with Armando Galarraga pitching for the Tigers. Jim Joyce was at uh, umpiring first base. Galarraga needed one out for a perfect game. Ground ball, right side. Cabrera will cut it off. Galarraga covers. He's out. Oh, he's safe. He is safe. And as it turned out, of course, that was the difference between Galarraga throwing a a perfect game or not. Jim Joyce got the call wrong, as he admitted right after the game, after seeing replay. And that fueled the conversation for the replay system that we have in place now. You remember this, 2011, Buster Posey catching for the Giants. Sure, Holtz has the best arm. Fairly shallow, more center than right. Cousins is going to test him. Posey can't handle it, and Posey gets clobbered. Posey is hurt, and he never caught the ball. The Marlins are back ahead, and the Giants' only focus now is Buster Posey. That's right, Buster Posey hurt on a home plate collision, uh, devastating injury. That led to change. No more home plate collisions. Uh, in the playoffs in 2015, Dodgers and Mets. Chase Utley at first base, Ruben Tejada playing short for the Mets. Up the middle, gloved by Murphy. There's one, and they will not get the double play. Wow, did Chase Utley go in hard at second as the tying run scores? Yep, and Tejada had his leg broken on that slide by Chase Utley, which led to the change in the rules on plays at second base. And then last night, Jason Castro batting for the Astros, Laz Diaz, calls a pitch that was in the strike zone, according to uh, the radar system that they use in place last night. He calls it a ball. Uh, the game extends. Castro uh, winds up giving the Astros a lead. They go on and win the game. And after the game, a lot of people talking about Laz Diaz's strike zone. 23 missed calls. It's the most in any postseason game this year. I got to tell you, as I watched the game live, I wasn't surprised that he missed that particular pitch. You know, that backdoor breaking ball against the left-handed hitter, because it feels like umpires have a hard time seeing that particular pitch. According to Pitch Savannah, a breaking ball pitch in that location uh, to a left-handed batter was a ball 63% of the time this year and a called strike 25% of the time. Maybe that's just a blind spot, uh, Dave, but it's getting a lot of attention. Our colleague Jeff Passan wrote about it today on ESPN.com, you know, that after the game, uh, you know, Alex Cora talked about it. Nathan Avaldi talked about it. It was replayed a billion times on shows I saw this morning. I wouldn't be surprised at all if 
uh, whenever the electronic strike zone comes, that this game will be talked about as a crossroad. What do you think? Yeah, I love how you led into that. You know, we have the Buster Posey rule. We have the Chase Utley rule. Is this going to be the last Diaz rule? I don't know how he ranked during the regular season. No doubt he had a bad game last night. And that's the unfortunate part of this and that call in particular. We end up talking about the umpire rather than the game, rather than about Jose Altuve's home run. Or, you know, to Houston's credit, their rally after the fact, you know, and Jason Castro's hit. Nathan Evaldi still had a chance to get him out, you know, um, and he couldn't do it. So there is that. But I'm with you. One call like that in a prominent moment against a prominent team, you know, um, if Houston goes on to win this series, you're right. That's just going to make us one step closer to the uh, robot umpires. Yeah. And earlier in the day, we had a similar thing actually happen in the Dodgers and Braves game. Uh, you saw Walker Bueller. He threw strike three to Jock Peterson. Uh, Jeremy yep. Mills, uh, the home plate umpire. I don't know how he missed that one. It was an 0-2 call. And after that, you know, the inning unraveled uh, for Walker Bueller and the Dodgers. And look, he's ultimately responsible for, you know, Walker is for that inning. But there's yeah. no question that was a potential crossroad in that game as well. Yeah, that was even a worse call. I don't know what the strike probability, like you said, at least with Laz Diaz, you know, that pitch usually is called a ball. So warning, you know, electronic umpires, there are going to be a lot of pitches that we're used to be calling balls that are going to be strikes and vice versa. So the strike zone, when we get there, is going to look a lot different. But yeah, look, it's, I guess you can always say this too. This is how baseball is, you know, and players for the most part, Buster, you know, and, and managers, they do tend to say we like the human element. We make mistakes. Umpires make mistakes, but they don't like to see umpires make mistakes in those moments. All right. I'm not going to spend a lot of time previewing game five, but because by the time this podcast lands and that's a late afternoon game, uh, you know, that game will, uh, for some people listen to the podcast, it, the, the game will have already started. Chris Sale going up against uh, Framber Valdez, uh, both teams prepared to throw the bullpen kitchen sink at the opponent. <laughs> so it, uh, the series now tied two all. All right. So this uh, piece I did on the free agent shortstops was really fun because I talked to 11 different evaluators and asked them the question among the five elite shortstop free agents, rank them one through five. And I'm going to ask you to do this. So, uh, Dave, so among uh, Carlos Correa, uh, Corey Seager, you've got uh, Javier Baez, Trevor Story and Marcus Simeon, who I know is a second baseman for the Blue Jays this year. But the expectation uh, among the evaluators is, is that he's going to be seriously looked at as a shortstop for the team that signs him among those five. How would you rank them one through five? So I think you'll agree with this. Carlos Correa, easy. Number one, he's the youngest of the group. And to me, the separator for him versus a couple of the other guys is his defense, you know, Corey Seager, good hitter, but we've seen this just this postseason. Correa is a much better defensive player than Corey Seager. So I'm going uh, Correa number one. Disagree? Agree? Uh, I want to hear your two through five okay. and I'll give you what I got. <laughs> okay. Number two, I will go Seager. Uh, the one concern I'll make this quick. Is he a shortstop long-term good enough to stay there? I'd say two or three more years, but I think he does eventually move to third base. Uh, number three, I'm going Trevor story. I know he didn't have a good year at the bat. Uh, but I think he bounces back. 
elite athlete, elite defender. He's my number three guy. Probably go Javier Baez for um, the bat up and down, great defender. And Simeon, I love him. I love him a little more as a second baseman, but mostly his age. He's 31 already. Um, that's the only reason I rank him fifth, even though he had an MVP caliber, MVP caliber season. All right. Here's what I got from the evaluators. Number one is Seeger. Okay. They love the hit tool. They love the left-handedness as well. He's alone. The other hitters are right-handed. They absolutely share your view about the questions about his position. Uh, I had people say he right in this moment and for what the Yankees are going to need in 2022 is a perfect fit because you could sign him to be the shortstop for 2022. And, you know, their top prospects are shortstops. And so by the time you get to 23 or 24, then you slide Seager over to, to third base. Correa is number two. He clearly is growing on people. <laughs> like he's putting, as I wrote in the piece, he's putting on an audition for teams, audition tape for teams in this postseason. They love his toughness, his athleticism. They do wonder about what's in his medical file because he's had right. lower back issues as a young man. Uh, Trevor Story, you had it three. The evaluators had him at number four. A lot of questions about his throwing arm. And I have a lot of details in there about his velocity that he was throwing at, uh, you know, leading up to when he hurt his elbow in May, what's happened since then and how that's going to affect his standing. Uh, Marcus Simeon actually was number three. A lot of people feeling that I spoke with feeling he's going to be the best investment on the market. He's a little bit older, but they cite the fact that he posts up. Some of these other guys have injury concern. Simeon is always in the lineup. Uh, They talk about him as a leader. They love him. And they also know because he's older, his contract isn't going to be as large. And so some people wondering, you know what, is in the end, is he the best investment? More than half the people that I spoke with, Dave, started with this comment when I said rank them one through five. Uh, more than half started with, well, bias is definitely five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be my natural instinct as well. Right. Now, if we're factoring in what they actually will get paid and the value of the investment, I'm with you with Simeon. And you're so right about the durability. He played 162 this year. Go back through his career. He's there every single day. That's so important. You know, I, I talked about that with my Mariner fans who are like, oh, how can we lose Kyle Seeger? Kyle Seeger's not a great player, but he plays every game. And in today's baseball, playing every game is so valuable. And Carlos Correa and Corey Seeger. Both have injury history. So that is something to keep on mind on, on signing those two guys. And it's interesting, uh, you know, let's say for the for the sake of uh, argument that the CBA, the next CBA is signed relatively soon. Let's say it actually happens in early December. I wouldn't be surprised to see these five shortstops get close to a billion dollars between the <laughs> five of them. Uh, because one thing that became very clear in my conversations with people around baseball there are going to be a lot of teams bidding on this group of, uh, of players and not, you know, the usual suspects like the Yankees and whether or not the Dodgers would go back to, uh, you know, to try to keep Seager. The Texas Rangers are seen as a major force in the upcoming free agent market where, you know, Chris Young, their general manager, is seen as someone who wants to change the culture of the organization, which is why people wonder about Simeon, maybe getting big offers from them, maybe Trevor Story, who grew up in the Dallas area. Uh, the Tigers yep. are expected to get one of the five guys. And the natural one, I think you would agree with me, Carlos Correa. Yep. Uh, you know, his uh, his former manager, A.J. Hinch, manages the Tigers. Is that a factor? But the expectation is the Tigers are going to land one of these five. The Mariners 
are seen as a really, really uh, dangerous team in this free agent market because it's a team on the rise and they don't have many payroll obligations moving forward. Yeah, they're interesting because they have a gold glove shortstop and J.P. Crawford. Um, so you would hate to move him off shortstop to, you know, second base, but they need a hitter. They need a big bat. So, yeah, one of those guys would be a great fit in Seattle. I'm with you on Detroit, um, a team that had vast improvement last year, especially with the pitching. They need a bat. Man, Carlos Correa. Absolutely perfect fit, especially like you said, if the Yankees might be more interested in Corey Seager. So, man, I can't wait. I, I can't wait for the World Series to get to us here, but I can't wait for this offseason. Yeah, Philly's another team to watch. Like they clearly need a shortstop. They do have major payroll obligations to other players. So it'll be interesting yep. to see where it goes. All right, Dave, thanks for doing this. All right, Buster. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world. Or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. And Todd, I'm not even going to ask you how you're doing this morning because you're a Red Sox fan. And you're oh. probably wondering about Laz Diaz's strike zone as well, huh? Oh, I think the entire world, you know, this is being debated from uh, from one end of the globe to the other. Buster, I mean, it was, you know, my very quiet living room in the wee hours. I just want to get some sleep eventually. It was it was a very, very ugly thing. But we've got a series now. We've got two series now. And the possibilities are endless. Okay, the emotion went out of your voice because when you first signed on in the Zoom that we're doing here, right, before we actually started taping, you're dropping F-bombs all over the place. Well, this is a family show, Buster. We know this. <laughs> but uh, what what my thoughts are is that, you know, sometime in those wee hours, it, it, Laz Diaz, you know, and his effing strike zone were one thing, but it, it, the Red Sox basically steered the wrong way into a into a skid, hit a big wet pile of leaves, 
in the the top of the ninth and uh, drove off the road. But Alex Cora will get them back on the road. They will proceed slowly. We've got a series. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Real quick before we get to this week's forgotten franchise. Uh, from 30,000 feet, do you agree with me that a game like that, because of all the attention on it, forget, you know, angry Red Sox fans like yourself, but when you have a moment like that that gets that much attention, that's becomes the engines of change in baseball. Uh, the Buster Posey play leading to the change in, in the you know, rules blocking home plate, the Chase Utley slide, uh, the Armando Galarraga uh, perfect game that didn't happen because of the mistake leading to more replays. I would not at all be surprised if this becomes an engine to change. You buying it? Uh, I don't totally disagree with you, Buster, but I do think we live in a world where controversies are forgotten very, very quickly and we move on. Uh, and listen, we were uh, we were all talking about a, a play that went um, that went for the Red Sox not too long ago in the race yeah. series, that ball that bounced off Hunter Renfro. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I just think the world is different now than it was you know, a year ago, five years ago. And uh, we're going to see another controversy that that perhaps uh, surpasses this one. Um, people have been about balls and strikes since the beginning of the game, right? Oh, without a doubt. And I think the difference is now, though, that everyone knows, Watch anybody who watches tennis sees that they have the technology to get calls right. Uh, and, you know, they're clearly at some point within the next five years, there's going to be an electronic strike zone. And I just wonder if, you know, what happened last night will accelerate that. Speaking well, of forgotten, <laughs> this week is the final forgotten franchise. You've done such a great job with these this week. Golf claps for you. I pre this year. I, I so much appreciate the work you put into this. Thank you very much. Well, it's been a lot of fun and we're going to finish strong. So Buster, this week's forgotten franchise is a team that never even took the field of play. It is the Toronto giants who for a very few short weeks in the winter of 1976, were looking to become the national league's second Canadian city alongside Montreal on January 9th, 1976, the San Francisco Giants Board of Directors held a three-hour meeting, which was followed up with a terse statement saying that they had conditionally sold the franchise to a Toronto consortium led by Labatt's Breweries for $13.25 million. This included $5.25 million for legal expenses and the cost of breaking the club's lease at Candlestick Park, which still had 19 years to run. If the deal was approved by the National League, owners, then the Giants would be Toronto-bound. The new prospective owners announced that the club would be called the Toronto Giants, citing the franchise's long, rich history. The team was bleeding cash at this time. They averaged less than 6,500 fans a home game in 1975. The National League had lent the Giants $500,000 the previous summer, and the team had been unable to repay the loan and was behind in rent payments at Candlestick. Remember, Buster, that the Oakland A's, located right across the bay, won three consecutive World Series titles in 1972, 73, and 74. And while their attendance wasn't exactly booming, they clearly had the upper hand when it came to Bay Area baseball at this particular moment in time. San Francisco Mayor George Moscone immediately jumped into action, threatening to stop the sale, citing the fact that the club would be breaking their lease and noting the fact that the city was still on the hook for $23 million in bonds that had been issued to build Candlestick Park. 
A month later, a superior court judge blocked the sale and Moscone found a new local buyer for the ball club when an 11th hour bid of $8 million in cash was made by a group led by Bob Lurie, thus securing the Giants for the Bay Area, where they, of course, remain to this very day. Toronto wouldn't have to wait long for a team of its own, however, as it landed the expansion Blue Jays the following season. But for now, the almost Toronto Giants are this week's and this season's final forgotten franchise. Nice job with that. Uh, As you were talking, I was just thinking about the times when the Giants have seemed like this fragile franchise repeatedly, right? Uh, We talked early in the year about how they almost uh, moved to Florida. Uh, And yet, I think as we sit here today, would you agree with me? They may be the most stable franchise financially of the 30, or at least they'd be in the conversation, uh, despite that ignominious history they have. They are a revenue-generating machine. They are printing cash by the bay. There is new development buster. And you know what this all stems back to? It stems back to the fact that they were forced to privately finance uh, their ballpark, Oracle Park, and uh, they are now reaping the rewards of that. They they did that at the right time. It's been you know 20 years now, but uh, they are one of the most prosperous franchises in baseball, in all of professional sports, and they control a stream of revenues that would make some of their uh, fellow franchises uh, envious. No doubt about it. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, guys. Taylor, are you ready? Uh, oh, no. I, I, why do I feel like there's going to be a color element to this one <laughs> after being threatened with that last week? Not this week, Buster. So okay. here we go. This was the first sitting U.S. president to attend a Major League Baseball game. Was it A, William Howard Taft? Was it B, William McKinley? Was it C, Benjamin Harrison? Or was it D, Ulysses S. Grant? First sitting U.S. president to attend a Major League Baseball game. Taft, McKinley, Benjamin Harrison, or Grant? Mm. I feel like Buster knows this. Taylor? <laughs> uh, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Ulysses Grant. Probably wrong. Mm, man, I'm going to go with McKinley. You're both wrong. You are oh, both yes. wrong. It was Benjamin Harrison who on June 6th, wow. 1892, attended a game at Washington's boundary field between Cincinnati and Washington. You're both wrong. And there are not many things that any of us know about Benjamin Harrison, but now we know this. Uh, I I know that I don't know that much about him because he wasn't necessarily someone who was long for the office. (laughs) There were a series of those in those years, right? Right. He was he was the grandson of the uh, one month wonder, William Henry Harrison. He was short. He had a beard. But a lot of those guys had beards in those days. And they all died. Yeah, of and I wonder, you know, back at that time, <laughs> as you know, baseball at its outset was sort of viewed as a rogue sport. <laughs> yes, that's right. So exactly. I wondered how, you know, if, you know, if there were back in that day, if they had like focus groups and polls and that sort of thing, uh, what the initial response would have been to some of these presidents attending a baseball game, their advice would have been like, no, 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 no. Don't go near those people. <laughs> well, and you could you could walk into the White House in those days. Right. You didn't need an appointment. Mm. <laughs> Which, you know, cause for some problems, certainly. But exactly. uh, all right. Well, we we uh, we tie our series. You're going deep. We've got tied series, all kinds of things going on. So uh, let's let's not collectively hit a skid 
uh, in the wrong direction. Yep. Well, thank you for not in, in invoking uh, colors. That would have been a real problem for me. All right, Todd, thank you very much. And thanks again for the Forgotten Franchise. Those were great. Guys, thank you so much. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. First, we have Louisville Slugger at Ville underscore Slugger 6. Schwarber fits perfectly with the Red Sox. What is the likelihood he'll be back in Boston next year? Are you willing to bet the family farm? No, uh, I think, uh, first off, I want to keep the family farm. Second, um, I think it'll wind up someplace else. I think Schwarber's going to get a really nice contract in the winter. And the fact is, is that in the wintertime, the Red Sox will look at the roster. They'll see that, you know, in all likelihood, they're going to have J.D. Martinez and they will not want to carry two expensive DHs. Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit is up next. When TBS showed each team's defensive alignment in the NLCS, it reminded me how good these two infields are. Where do these two infields rank among all 30 teams? I'd have to imagine both are in the top five, even with L.A. missing Muncie. Yeah, Atlanta might have the best infield uh, in baseball. The Dodgers, you know, Seager struggled defensively in this series. And you're right, without Max Muncie, it diminishes a little bit. But excellent. Pretty good on both sides. Last one for today, Katie Casey at Tweacher Beliefs writes in, are the 2015 Royals to blame for the paradigm change in Major League Baseball postseason strategy outplayed for the whole series with mediocre starting pitching and still winning it all? Katie, you're right. They kicked off the conversation. The idea that you had this parade of relievers at the back end, because you remember in the 15 Royals did not have a great rotation, probably average at best. And they went on and won the World Series because they dominated the late innings. And that's what teams are following right now. And we'll talk about that. I sent out a tweet yesterday saying, boy, they got to do something about all these pitching changes because they dramatically slow the game down. And it's not just a nerd sports writer like me saying that. People (laughs) within team, within organizations, they don't like it. They can't stand it. You know, the Dodgers last night, we used, what, nine pitchers for nine innings. People in the sport don't like the product. Glad you uh, clarified that. It's not just you, Buster. You got a lot of blowback for that tweet yesterday, and we'll address it later. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter, and please follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for today. My thanks to Dave, to Todd, and to the Reverend. Taylor, congratulations. This this nickname has stuck with you like no other, I think. Oh, I love it. I love it. See, Buster, you can give yourself your own nickname. No big deal, everyone. Oh, me, I, I got to figure out a way around that. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Uh, have a great day. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight Podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.